millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, let me start with a quick quotation for you. Nice, easy one, so we can move quickly. Love peace and return to unity. That was St. Augustine in letter 76 to the Donatists. Love peace and return to unity. I like that. So I've also been been talking to you about the the crime scene. I'm going to go a little bit off the thread here and say that that I found something from much later where, I don't know, this is, this is like the zombies walking down, like a zombie that becomes a zombie in New York walking around, I don't know, somewhere in Argentina, let's say. And, and you can see the, the drops of blood falling off the zombie's body, right? So this is an example of what I'm going to show you right now. This is way downstream from the actual killing. But listen to this sentence. This is, this is about... This is in relation to this book right here, which is Elements of Rhetoric by Waitley, Richard Waitley. He wrote this. This was a textbook widely used in the 1800s in the U.S. It's not bad. But here's, here's what um, Kennedy, in this book, Classical Rhetoric, um, in its Christian secular tradition, this is a very good history of rhetoric if you have a high tolerance for detail and boredom. Um, he says this about that book. His observations on composition in the introduction, influenced by the Romantic movement of his time, encouraged teachers to abandon set themes, imitations, and amplifications, as practiced earlier, and to assign free composition based on the student's experience. Waitley seems to have been the first to propose the essay topic, ready for this? what I did on my summer vacation. And there you see one of the last gasps of Western civilization. (laughs) Anyway, good old romantics. The romantic movement is a very direct consequence of the um, annihilation of rhetoric by Peter Ramos. We can get into that going forward. Oh, that reminds me of the question for tonight. Katie, you can't go. You have to ask me the question because I can't remember exactly what it what it yes. was. And now we're actually going to get started. So those of you who have had a hard time listening to this introductory stuff, forgive us. But here comes the first question. So here is your question for the first 15 minutes. 
And we're 10 minutes in, so you got five minutes to go, but you can actually have 15. Okay. It says, I would be so grateful if you would outline who or what informs your definition of rhetoric, particularly your thoughts on harmony and why decision-making takes precedence over persuasion. So going, giving some sources on that. So first your definition and then your sources outline where you get your ideas. So, okay, so what I'm understanding is where, where did I get my definition of rhetoric and especially the emphasis on harmony? What are the sources of that? And then why the emphasis on decision-making over persuasion? Let me deal with that second part first because it's, it's, it's easier, I think. Um, when I think of decision-making and persuasion, basically the reason you persuade somebody is so that they make a decision. So it's... It's not very different. So my emphasis on decision-making is it's an attempt to draw back from me trying to convince you to do what I'm thinking and instead to have me enter into a relationship with you in a community so that we together can make a decision. So that's, that's the move I'm making there. Now that brings up the question of why the emphasis on harmony, but more than that, why your definition and where does it come from? So let me give the definition that I use for rhetoric and then see if I can defend it. Um, the definition that I go by is that rhetoric is the art of decision-making in community. Okay, it's the art of decision-making in community. Now, as far as where does that come from, that's such a good question because it compelled me to draw back and review a lot of years of reflection. I don't, this is a weird thing. I don't study rhetoric or the seven liberal arts or cosmology or all these things as a scholar. I, I respect scholars enormously. Wish that I could have been a scholar, but I don't study as a scholar for two reasons. One is because I'm not one, and the other is because the end of my study is practical, believe it or not. The end of my study is, is not to come to a conclusion about what I believe or what should be, should be believed or understood about something, but to do something, to teach. And so, so when, I, when I read multiple books on a topic, I have a tendency to read like a hungry dog more than like an orderly person, right? I, I, I tend to read and study more ravenously or more hungrily, which means that sometimes I can't remember. This is bad. Please understand. I recognize this is a fault, but sometimes I can't remember where some of the ideas have come from and what generated them. So what I've had to do now is, is, is do a survey of, 30 years worth of thinking about rhetoric, really far more than that, actually, and try to figure out, so where does this definition come from? Can I not point to somebody who said that? And if I can't point to somebody who said that, well, who do I think I am? And the fact is, I don't know. <laughs> I just offer it. Maybe all I've done is, is put it in a different verbal expression. So with all of that, let me, let me try to express for you some of the 
ideas, the threads that I can identify as over time coming together. And, and frankly, the first of them might or might not be a little bit surprising to you, but it's childhood worship. When I, when I was a boy, I went to a very unique um, denomination in which any, any male could get up. Well, we had, a, we had a Quaker-ish kind of worship service where any male could stand and could, could say something, pray a prayer, read a Bible passage, um, propose a hymn, uh, or, or meditate on what they would constantly call the person and the work of Christ. And it was very strongly emphasized that this is not a teaching session. It's a worship session. And they made this big distinction that worship is time during which you are thinking and, and talking about the goodness of God, the character of God, what God has done. It's about him, not about us. It's not even ultimately about what he's done for us, unless that points out something about him. So we're before his throne, and he's the important thing. And it's, it's a fascinating thing, because practically what that did for me and for a lot of, a lot of young men is, as I said, anybody any male could get up at the time. They probably let females now, but any male could get up and speak. We were encouraged to. The very first time I ever got up in a worship service, and, and understand this tends to be a service that has mostly older people in it, but the very first time I got up, I was probably 11, and I, and I proposed to him. And that afternoon, my mother said, who do you think you are? <laughs> But I did it. And then and then as the years passed, I would get up occasionally and I would just share something. And here's the thing about this. The way it worked was it was it was very, very 19th century, early 20th century English Christianity of the if you're familiar with all the movements of the the um, Anabaptist variety. Very strong emphasis on the spirit, but prior to the charismatic movement. So what we were supposed to do during this time was follow the leading of the spirit, which I didn't know what that meant, so I did my best guessing. But what I look back on and realize now is that what I was doing was I was listening closely to everything everybody else said, and that was easy because they would only talk for three, four, five minutes. I would listen closely to, to, to hymns that we were singing. I would listen closely to Bible passages. And meanwhile, I would be reading my Bible. This is when I got older. My dad taught me that you just sit there and read your Bible and you wait on the Spirit, right? So I'm, so I'm reading my Bible and I'm, I'm contemplating. Without knowing it, I'm learning a spiritual discipline. And sometimes what I was reading about or thinking about would fit in perfectly with everything else that was going on around me. And in my amazement, I would get up and share my thoughts. And I probably started doing that fairly often around the time I was 15. So in this denomination, they were always looking for young people to be exercising their spiritual gifts, which included teaching and, and, uh, and exhortation. And so that led to lots of opportunities for me to be in a public speaking role, which was really crazy. But that's what I was doing. First, you'll laugh at this. The very first time they asked me to preach, they, they had me for 10 minutes on a Sunday night. And I was, I think, 16 years old. 
And the topic, the topic of my sermon that night was humility. <laughs> so, so the Lord is very funny. Okay. So, so um, maybe he's, maybe he makes points, but anyway, so, so in that encounter, in that experience, without knowing it, seeds were being planted in my mind about rhetoric which just means public communication at a certain really basic level. But the habit that I was forming was very communal. It was very much a matter of fitting in with and harmonizing with the people around me and what they were thinking about. So I developed a habit. Now, I don't have any idea how much to um, ascribe to that, but that's, that, was the, that was the childhood formation. But on the, on, the, on the side of my theory or my definition of rhetoric, when I was older and I started teaching many years later, relatively speaking, when I was 29, I started teaching. And then I started asking, what is classical education? Right? And, and, then I, and, and, and I had a really strong discomfort with um, technique-driven education, as you can probably say to the, see to this day. I had a really hard time accepting modes of education that prevented the Holy Spirit from having a role in the classroom. I had a really hard time um, just accepting rigid formulas or even curricula. I can't stand textbooks. Can't They're demon-possessed, in my opinion. They're unclean spirits. But, but, um, but I did appreciate the importance of communication and the importance of teaching well. And I, I noticed that there were days when I taught well, and there were days when I taught really badly. And I wanted to know why sometimes I taught so badly. And I wanted to know if it was anything other than just a lack of character. Because sometimes it was because I was lazy. But sometimes it worked, right? Sometimes I communicated to the kids and they got it. And sometimes I thought I had a great lesson and it didn't connect. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the whole act of teaching and how do you connect with people. Okay, so in that personal context, I'm also trying to figure out what is classical education. And it doesn't take very long, like the first day, to find out that there's this thing called the trivium that has an art of rhetoric in it, and the art of rhetoric has to do with communication. So immediately I'm trying to teach my students how to write essays, and I'm asking how is this done classically? And then I, start, then I start thinking about all seven liberal arts. And I'm also very obsessed, to this day, I've been obsessed with the, the, the first Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3 passage, because honestly, if you're a Christian and you care about public speaking and, you're, and you like classical education, that's the passage you have to deal with. Because it sure sounds on the surface like Paul is condemning public speaking and that he's condemning training and rhetoric, and that he's condemning words of wisdom, he calls them. So how do you get it? How do you how do you teach it then? How do you claim there's a place for it? Well, so then I start asking questions about the seven liberal arts, about the trivium, and very gradually, very gradually, I start recognizing some patterns in it. And the reason I think I started recognizing the patterns gets more directly to the question of what are the, the text sources. Okay, the first, the first source that I want to emphasize that by this time won't surprise you, but I really want to emphasize it, is Homer. 
And very gradually, again, I realized that Homer the Iliad isn't just a really good story. In fact, I didn't like it the first time I read it. But Homer's Iliad is all about rhetoric. Every single book in the Iliad, there's 24 books, scrolls, if you like, every single one of them turns on a decision that is made based on speeches without a single exception. And so that struck me. And then I read Plato. Well, not well, along with this over the years, I'm reading Plato and he's got the Phaedrus at P-H-A-E-D-R-U-S and the Gorgias and Mino, which are three books that we promote with, sorry, that we that we read a lot and closely in the apprenticeship, because these are three crucial books on rhetoric. And in the Gorgias, he basically, Gorgias is a sophist. He's a rhetorician, a professional rhetorician, a how to make friends and influence people guy. And what he does with, with um, Gorgias is he annihilates him. He basically says to him, your theory is so bad, and let me prove that to you by showing you the result of it in these two students of yours. Because it's a dialogue with three people, each one worse than the one before. But then there's the Phaedrus, which Plato wrote many years later. And in this, he has a more accepting, nuanced appreciation for the potential, the possibilities of rhetoric. What seems to have happened historically is Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, read all these works, of course, studied them with Plato, and meditated deeply on the questions that Plato raises in the Phaedrus, the challenges. Because in the Phaedrus, Plato basically says, look, if you're going to do rhetoric, these are the terms that you have to meet for it to be justified. So Aristotle studies these issues. For example, what kind of soul do people have? Right? That, for Plato, that's a big question. And Aristotle then lays out a response to Plato in a handbook on rhetoric, which is a philosophical handbook. So I, I see this and I start teaching things out of it, but I see it very much as a stream. So there's Homer, there's Plato, there's Aristotle, well, there's Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then coming after that is this whole Roman adoption and frankly, tremendous conflict on the issue of rhetoric. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out of time in about a minute, so I'll just warn you that I'll go ahead and finish this on, on Thursday. But when you get to the Romans, the initial Roman response to Greek rhetoric is total rejection. They think it's, they think it's nonsense, that it's evil. But then gradually they too wrestle with it and kind of purify it, you might say, at least from a Roman perspective. And then Cicero comes along, and Cicero raises rhetoric to this lofty, uh, philosophical sort of, but certainly political duty, right? That, that if you are a leader in society, you have a duty to be able to know the truth, to have a general knowledge, and to be able to, to persuade people to do what is best for Rome, right? That was his attitude. And then Quintilian comes along not long after that, maybe a century. And Quintilian writes five volumes. I pulled up four because one's in the other room. Five volumes in, our, in, our, in the lobe of the whole lifetime curriculum of the Roman student. And the goal of Roman education in Quintilian is to be a good speaker, is to be a, a rhetorician. So 
all of these books, and then something like this, Kennedy's Classical Rhetoric, right? And then Corbett, and then my teaching it in class, always troubled deeply. I've always been deeply troubled by the fact that when you teach a child how to persuade, you are empowering them to do evil. That's always been a concern to me. So how do you justify it? Well, to take a radical shortcut, I'll end by, for tonight by just cutting right to the chase and saying that when I was studying the seven liberal arts and I was studying this long stream, and I, especially Homer, I got to say, I, I came to three conclusions. That all of the seven liberal arts are cultivating three faculties. We've talked about this, but all seven of the, of the liberal arts are liberal arts because they cultivate three faculties. The first of those faculties is the faculty or a faculty of truth perception. In other words, each of the seven liberal arts enables us to see truth in a different way. Right? You see truth in arithmetic differently than the way you see it in, gra- in, well, in grammar. Logic then helps you extend, and we won't go into any more detail except to say all of them enable you to see truth in a different way. Then the second thing is because they enable you to see truth, they enable you to be free because the truth is what makes you free, right? You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. So these are seven different ways that we can become free people. Therefore, they are liberal arts, the liberal arts, in fact. The other thing I noticed is that all of them are governed by the one art of harmony. And by the way, harmonia, that's another name for the art of music in the seven liberal arts tradition. So harmonia, even though it's kind of in the middle there, is is sort of a a transition art. It, It goes on both sides. And when you see when you see math meet language, you get poetry, don't you? Sorry, when you see music, yeah, well, math too. When you see music meet language, you get poetry. So all seven liberal arts are about harmonizing something. So then the question to me became, well, if that's the case, then what is, what is rhetoric harmonizing? I can see that grammar harmonizes a thought or, a, or, a, or the mind, right, a sentence. I can see that logic harmonizes a sequence of thoughts. But what does rhetoric harmonize? And then it dawned on me. The community. It harmonizes the community. In fact, if you don't know the tools by which you can bring harmony to a community, you can't bring harmony to a community. And so, so I can't point to one book where somebody said rhetoric is the art of bringing harmony to a community through decision making. But everything, everything through the whole tradition has that as basically a, sub, a subset going under it. Take, take Aristotle. For Aristotle, rhetoric must be understood in an ethical context. The only reason he could write a handbook on rhetoric is because he also wrote a book on ethics. And he also wrote a book on politics. And if you read his rhetoric apart from ethics and politics, then he would be disappointed in you, let's say. He doesn't want you to think about rhetoric apart from ethics and politics. Well, what's the goal in ethics? There's a lot of ways to put it. He would probably say virtue, but included in it is an internal harmony. 
What's the goal in politics? Brotherhood, friendship. That was what he called it. Well, what's friendship? A harmony of souls. So wherever you, wherever you look, the human need, the human drive, the human appetite for harmony will never go away. And the seven liberal arts cultivate that appetite in different ways. And rhetoric is the means by which we cultivate the capacity to bring harmony to a community. I'll end by saying this one or two sentences, and then I really will end. The reason it's about decision-making in community is because harmony is the goal, not the definition. That's the purpose, not the nature. The nature of rhetoric is to deal with the fact that there are discords in community, right? Well, what do you do about the fact that there is discord in your community? You discuss it. You deal with it. And how do you deal with it? Invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. That's how you do. Now, can it be reduced to persuasion? That's what the sophists do. But the basic reality of of rhetoric is that it is the art of decision-making in community by nature, and its purpose is to bring harmony into and to maintain harmony in a community which is one of the hardest things, it is the hardest thing any human being has ever had to do. And therefore, we need to start training in this from the day we're born. We need to start training our children in it from before they're born. And we need to spend every day until we die pursuing mastery of rhetoric, always understanding that for us, rhetoric begins with repentance, because what it utterly depends on absolutely depends on even quintilian saw this is character if if you aren't a good person you won't persuade people to do the right things except by accident so i'll end with that so so i i i I mean basically what i just said is there's way too many books for me to be able to tell you exactly but the most important ones are the iliad to some extent the odyssey but that's really on poetics um, the Bible, 1 Corinthians 1 to 3 in particular, but the whole Bible. Um, Plato's Gorgias, Plato's Mino, Plato's Phaedrus. To some, well, leave it at that. Oh, I should also mention uh, Hamlet. It's not obvious, but Hamlet is also a book on rhetoric, deeply. In fact, everything by Shakespeare is on rhetoric. And that inf- Hamlet influenced my thought profoundly on the place of rhetoric. Okay, I said I was going to end. So now I know. I'm going to interject to that very, very briefly before I ask a question. Um, We know that in the medieval, leading up into Shakespeare mostly, there was the rise of dialectic over rhetoric. And it's hard to point to sources for rhetoric, particularly from that era, when you come, when you're looking for a definition of rhetoric, do you think that might be because rhetoric was oral and because it was tradition was passed on by bards. And so instead of getting philosophical or um, didactic texts that are explaining rhetoric, instead we get things like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and Beowulf. And that was their way of expressing um, rhetoric as communal decision-making? You, you know what I love about that is the answer, I think, is yes, but it also points out the place of Homer because what yeah. we can forget about Homer is that he's the end product 
of a very long oral tradition. And so, so he doesn't make up stuff as on the fly. He's taking 500 years probably of, 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 of poetry being condensed. And then his genius takes all of that. In fact, there's reason to believe that the, the, the vowels of our alphabet were, in fact, in a certain sense, our alphabet was invented because they wanted to preserve Homer and they needed vowels so that you could extend the words, right, to keep the meter. And so, so, so yes, in the Middle Ages, there's the, the oral culture that is being preserved in these texts that, that each pop up at the end of an oral tradition. And Homer's, Homer's majesty is in part because of being at the end of an oral tradition, which is why I think, honestly, I think Homer's a better philosopher and I think Homer's a better rhetorician than Plato and Aristotle because he understood the analogical nature of being better than Plato and Aristotle did. Plato and Aristotle had to explain everything. Homer just said it. Homer just showed it. Okay. We have to move on because I know you and I could go back and forth on this all night long. And sometimes we do. Um, Okay. So there's two questions that have been asked and I'm going to state them both to you, but they are so related that I think you can answer them both together. Um, one person asked if you could explain more what you mean when you're talking about the other seven liberal arts, you've really explained rhetoric, but there's some confusion on the other ones. Um, I've also had another question asking how the humanities and sciences fit within the seven liberal arts. Are they adjacent to them? Are they a subcategory or greater category? Um, so I think both of those questions need to be answered together. So one minute. For both questions. And you're going to answer them both at the same time. There's no way you can't, but I can give you two minutes. Okay. So, so first of all, the term humanities was coined by Cicero in the first century BC. And what he meant by the humanities, he listed the arts that he considered the humanities. They were grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music. I don't think he listed astronomy because Romans didn't care about that. And I think he said architecture and maybe even medicine. So when he said, when he used the term humanities, what he meant was those arts by which our natural, we would say God-given human faculties are cultivated to excellence. He didn't mean the opposite of science. He didn't mean the soft studies. He was including the mathematical studies. He called them humanities because they were distinct to human beings. You see, practical studies, he would not consider humanities because every animal is practical. What separates from the animals, mankind from the animals, isn't our practicality. It's the fact that we're lunatics who think transcendent thoughts, right? It's our, it's our lunacy, that, which relates to the moon. So, so that's an important point. So if we talk now about the humanities and the sciences in the modern sense, then we have to understand that I at least would argue we're talking about decadent subjects, subjects that are broken. So think of it this way. There is a tree of learning. We often talk about branches of learning, don't we? Okay. What always strikes me is it seems like nobody else ever talks about the trunk of the tree of learning. But where do these branches grow? So we can talk about biology as a branch of knowledge, and we can talk about chemistry as a branch of knowledge, and we can talk about history if you want, 
as a branch of knowledge. But what's the trunk? Well, the answer to that is actually on the Circe logo. Have you ever seen the Circe logo? There's seven leaves and there's a twisted, a twofold trunk, twisted. That, that means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is trivium and quadrivium, right? Together, they are the trunk of the tree of knowledge. Not the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of learning, okay? The tree of wisdom, you might even say. And so the seven liberal arts are the trunk. Now, what are the seven liberal arts is the question. Okay, they are two categories. I mentioned two, two twisting trunks there. The, the one category is the verbal arts, the arts of language, the ability to use language at a supremely high level, or even basically, the ability to listen well and read well and speak well. Okay? And those are so important because God gave us that ability so he could talk to us. The second branch, it, or trunk rather, is the quadrivium, which is four arts. Quadrivium means more or less four ways. And the four arts of the quadrivium, which is mathematical arts, are arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Now, grammar, logic, and rhetoric can be summarized like this. Grammar is the ability to interpret signs, to decode, if you like, to see the meaning of things. That's what grammar is. Logic is the ability to see the to to uh, see the sequence to, to maintain harmony between thoughts really is the best way to put it. And then rhetoric we've talked about is the art of decision making and community. So if grammar is the art of interpretation, logic is the art of reasoning. You might say, and uh, I don't like that, but let's just say it. And then and then rhetoric is the art of of decision making and community. Okay, arithmetic then, this is why I don't like reasoning for logic, they're all reasoning. Arithmetic is the art of, um, find, of maintaining harmony in, in quantities, in, in multitudes, in muchness. You know, in other words, how much of something is there? Three plus two is five. There were three things here and we added two things there and we got five things, right? So addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division is, is um, harmonizing numbers, maintaining harmony in numbers. I will say that arithmetic is store, I won't go into that. Okay, geometry then is maintaining harmony in shapes. Geometry literally means measure of the earth, or maybe just earth measure. And the use of it was to create boundaries so that you could be good neighbors with your friends practically. But then it, leads to all sorts of extraordinary wonders. Then harmonia or music, oh boy, <laughs> now it slips out of the capacity to understand with the modern mind. I don't really get music. I'll tell you that there's three kinds of music that they talked about. Instrumental music, humane music, and cosmic music or world music. What they meant was this. Instrumental music is what you and I still think of as music. The voice, an organ, a piano, a violin. Music you can hear with the ear. Humane music or, or human, musica humana in Latin, just human music, is music that we don't voluntarily participate in. We just are musical. 
And the easiest illustration of this is that your body operates on a three, four rhythm, right? So you breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. While you're doing that four beat, your heart is doing a three beat. So you've got, right? And so your heart is beating three to your breath breathing four. So you are a walking waltz. That is why the three, four rhythm is basically relaxing. The four, four arouses you and gets you moving. And the two, four, well, what would that be? Anything slower than three, four puts you to sleep. So, so you are already a musical being, okay? And then take it further, when they started measuring the movement of, of waves and on the sea and stars in the skies, they noticed the exact same patterns. And so this blew them away. So they called that the cosmic music or the music of the music of the spheres. And that leads to astronomy, which is the seventh liberal art, the fourth mathematical art. And, and that's inconceivable. Um, they, 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 their, their question when they studied astronomy was not just how does it happen and what, what, what happens, but what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean, for example, that, that um, Mercury moves around the sun and rotates in a pattern of one, two, three, which is the first chord? What, 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 is it, what is the significance of Mercury physically embodying in its movement the first musical chord? Right? They wondered about stuff like that. That led to the Ptolemaic system, which when that collapsed, my contention is that when the Ptolemaic system collapsed, classical education collapsed because it had got too attached to it. So that, that's, that's my two minutes on the seven liberal arts. Um, here's um, a question that I think you can do in a minute. Um, okay, what do you say for, let's say, a middle school or high school boy who is not interested, who doesn't seem to want to think deeply, and you're trying to teach them the classics. Go. Well, the old Roman think custom was, was really effective. It was called reverberation, because the Latin term for striking somebody with a stick is verberate. So, I mean, that's one option, just beat the child. Um, since our laws don't allow it, and even just that being put on a recording now will probably get me in trouble because I was joking. You're not allowed to joke anymore. I probably should just pack it in. But anyway, um, what was the question? <laughs> How do you engage middle school or younger boys who are just not interested in thinking deeply or seem to not be interested in thinking deeply yeah. in reading classics in particular? Well, right. See, the problem there isn't that they're not interested in reading classics necessarily. Let me draw an analogy. We often, we often notice that kids listen to each other's music without any problem, right? But then if you ask them to listen to classical music, you have to have classes and everything on it, which maybe is why they call it classical. I can't. Okay, I see it. There's a minute left. So, so with, with classical music, you have to give them classes, right? You have to teach them how to listen. And then we think, oh, well, classical music's different because you have to have classes. Well, the reason they don't need classes for the music they listen to with their friends is because they teach each other how to listen to it. 
It just happens. And so they don't need a, a formal bit of instruction. And so what happens is the questions are internalized. And I think that's the big issue. What, what we want often to do with our children is for them to see deep thoughts in a story because we do. Well, they're little kids for the most part, 12, 13, 14 years old, not little kids anymore, but they're not going to see the stuff we see. And if we want them to like the books we like, then we have to let them like the books we like on their own terms, rather like a friend. Like, you know, you, let, let's say you have a, a favorite sibling and you want your child to really like your, your, his uncle, right? And so you have him hang out with his uncle or his aunt or something like that, right? And so, so you, you really want them to, but if they like that person on the same basis that you like that person, well, first of all, they won't, they can't. So you have to let them have the, 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 the classic book at their perceptive capacity, at their age level, right? Now, the really great classics are accessible, but they're going to be accessible for different reasons at different ages. The younger they are, the more concrete it needs to be. So, for example, a four-year-old can love Shakespeare. Katie did. Loved Shakespeare when she was four. Didn't understand a word of it, but I still don't. So what's the big deal about that? What, what they'll like is the music, right? Shakespeare's musical. And so you have to let them like what they find if what your desire is for them is for them to like it. As far as deep thinking, you put seeds of thought in their minds and then and then some plant, some take hold and some don't. Right? That's been God's experience with us too. You, you, you throw a lot of seeds down. You, what you really want, oh, you know what? This is a good point. What you really want to do is teach them how to read. And I truly believe that far more important than hoping they'll enjoy reading anything is that you just teach them how to read. If they know how to read, they'll enjoy more. And for that, I'm going to recommend a product to you. Um, I'm going to recommend the, uh, the Circe Guide to Reading that Andrea Lipinski and I wrote. And I don't know if any of you have used it, but I picked it up just the other day. And I was really impressed by what Andrea put into it. So it, that, that, might be, that might be the tool to use with your middle school child. There, I, I should have just thought of that at the beginning and could have given a nice brief answer. Really, I'm trying. Yeah, Charlotte Mason, absolutely. Lay the feast and let the child take, take what they can get. But you can't, you, can't, you can't get a guarantee. There aren't any. Okay. You ready for another question? Are you, are you... Well, the question is not whether I am. It's whether they can take any more. Does everybody want more questions or are you feeling done? Okay, I've got two yes. So we're gonna okay. 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 Right. Um cool. Well the next one is very related. Homer. Um, what do we do with Homer? So that's yeah. from young children all the way up, or even translations of Homer with high schoolers. Um the whole the whole gamut. What do we do with Homer? Okay, so so with younger children, I would honestly approach Homer, forgive me for putting it in this way but more or less like you approach the Bible, except not as the inspired word of God, just as an inspired work of art. In other words, tell them the stories out of Homer. Find books that tell stories out of Homer. Maybe have them read some passages out of Homer, little pieces here and there. 
Because Homer, there's full of little stories, right? He t- tells these little stories that you can isolate. So you can approach it that way. Around middle school, you should give them some kind, if you haven't already, you should give them some kind of more or less children's literature. I like Padraig Colum, C-O-L-U-M. Padraig Colum, he wrote a book called The Children. There it is, The Children's Homer. I'm very fond of that. And the reason I am is because it's very poetic and stylish. I don't like very many modern books written for children, really at all, because I have a different rhetorical theory um, and practice. But some modern books written for kids can at least get the stories across to them. But really, you lose so much if they're not poetic. Some of the 19th century ones are much better. Church, for example. When you get to ninth grade, they can read. If they can read, they can read Homer. You just have to take your time. And maybe don't, if it's their first introduction, don't make them read the whole thing. Let them become somewhat familiar. But see, one of the things I don't like about the way school works is that you go to school and you get three weeks to read Homer in ninth grade, and then you say, I've already read Homer. No. Right? I mean, the, the notion that you would sit, read Homer over the course of three weeks to a Greek would be that, I mean, they'd run through the streets naked, screaming, Euphrica. See what I did there? They, they would, why would you do that? I mean, Homer is the greatest poet that ever lived outside the psalmist. So why would you, why would you treat him equally to anybody else? Right. You should be you, your, your curriculum. If you want a classical education from beginning to end, Homer should be a constant character, companion, teacher, whatever in your curriculum. But by ninth grade, they should be reading. If you can, if they're ready for it, they should be reading the whole of some translation. Now, as far as translations go, this is a good way to let your kids feel some control over it, which I think is really important. Take your kids to the library, to the bookstore, to the internet, somewhere, and, and tell them to, to grab five copies of, or whatever copies they can, of Homer's Iliad or Homer's Odyssey. And then tell them to just open it up to whatever page they want, and, and all of them, and then read a paragraph or two paragraphs, and then let them pick the one they like. It really doesn't matter for your first read what translation you use except that it's better if you like it. So if they can choose, that's, that's fine. No translation is anywhere close to the original. I was at, was it last week in this group, somebody asked why, why Latin? And my, when you can read the translations, and my cheeky answer, although it's true, is so you don't have to read the translations. Nowhere, nowhere is that more true than with Homer. I've read 15, 20 translations at least of Homer, including Latin. And nothing can capture what Homer is doing. The, the man is a verbal music, magician and musician. He, he does things that you can't translate. So, so don't worry about it. Get, get one that your kid likes. Know that it's going to fall way short. Hope that he gets the bug. And then give him really hard tests so that he, he hates Homer for the rest of his life. That last one was a joke for those of you who don't know dad's sense of humor. Sorry. Um, I'm assuming everyone knew that was a joke, but just in case, I had to clarify. You say enough weird things that that could have been it's true. It's true. It's true. I'm learning self-control. Okay, one more question. Okay. Um, 
If there's one common mistake that you're seeing classical educators making frequently, what would that be the most common mistake? And um, how would you change it? Or what would you say to correct that mistake? I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose I would say the most common mistake is maybe not believing in classical education as much as it deserves, or, or maybe being partial, being, being, being afraid to push it as far as you could. Um, classical education is staggeringly powerful. It's healing to the soul. It's empowering to the mind. Ordered to Christ, it will, it will make the glory of God more radiant than before you encountered it. It connects you with humanity over 3,000 years. And we worry about whether we're going to miss something that kids in another school are going to get. I mean, I couldn't care less if you miss something that the kids in the school down the street got. Couldn't care less. I couldn't care less if you did less well on a test because of the education we gave you. It, it means nothing to me to think about that. And the reason is because I've seen what classical, edu- I've seen what classical education has done in you. I've seen what classical education has done in families. It's so, so powerful. But we worry about missing something. And so we don't push on. We don't press on. So, okay, the way I'll put it is that we settle. We settle for, you know, we, we get to a point, you know, the, think of it this way. This is, this is how I talk to schools about it. Think of it like you're wanting to climb Mount Everest. And the very pinnacle of Mount Everest is the fulfillment of a Christian classical education. Instead of it being ice cold up there and, and no air, it's, in, it's, it's embodied light. And you eat the air for your energy, right? That's what it's like up there. So you start climbing. And you're exhausted after a week. Of course you are. It's a mountain. You go another week. And you find, you find this little plateau there. And you find that there's a, a river. And it's quite comfortable. So you settle. And you stop there. Well, you should stop there. You're tired. You should drink the water. You should enjoy the place. You should get refreshed. And then you should get climbing again. But it's so easy to say, now I get it. Now I got what I was looking for. Now that's enough. And just don't. Don't be content because, here, let me get really personal here. I'm going to be dead soon. I'm 56. You don't live very long. You know, we're given 70 or 80 years. I could be senile in five years if I'm not already. I'm not going to be much use much longer. I need help. And, and I, and I, there's, there's stuff. I, I had this, I had this insight, I think yesterday where it dawned on me that the curriculum in a Christian school could be so simple. What we should do is we should make the Lord's Prayer as blossoming outward through the temple. We should make that the structure of the whole curriculum from K to 12. It would, it would integrate all of reality, and it would, it would be so invigorating. And then I had the thought, and, and then I said it to Katie, and that's the end of it. I can't do anything with it. I need, I need people, just to be really selfish here, I need people 
who believe in this classical education, this Christian classical calling. I need people who, who, are, who would like to join me in this vocation because so many things just get clogged. Even at Cersei, I'm, I'm like the bottleneck, right? Things, things that, that, that we want to get things done at Cersei, and as soon as anything gets to me, it just sits there and dies. David's the one who makes Matt, Matt and David and Andrea, they're the ones who make things happen. I just clog things up. I need, I need people who can shake that bottleneck and break it and pour this wine out. I need people who can help me and heal me and fix my mess and, and all that. So for that reason, my personal appeal is, boy, I'd love it if, if some of you would join me in this, this calling and, and don't be content. Man, we have, we have, we have licked the outward surface of the skin of this apple. Maybe we've peeled the banana. <laughs> now, we have barely touched all the gifts that are in there. And what I have been able to do is taste and smell it, and I can see this, this radiant light. I can see it, but it's far off. So that's the biggest mistake we're making is we, 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 just, we, we don't press on. We, we, don't, we don't keep going. The end. On that note, we don't keep going. Oh, it's 10 o'clock. Oh, that's <laughs> good. That was good the way you did that. Uh, yeah, we have, to, we have to wrap it up here. There's many more thoughts and many more things to say, I am sure, but we'll have to leave them till Thursday. Yeah, let's hang out some more on Thursday. Thanks to all of you. Sorry if I got my um, motion started out of, got out of control there, but <laughs> I really love this. So, so thank you. And, and again, may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. And especially at this time, may the Lord be with you and rest in his presence because he is present. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.